Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another Political Rewind after a long Labor Day weekend. Hope you all had a good one uh, and that you're ready to get back into politics in a big way. Of course, our first thoughts today, and we'll discuss it on the show, are for all of you who are down along the coast, the uh, uh, Georgia coast. Um, Six counties uh, ordered mandatory evacuations. We'll talk a bit about that. But our thoughts are with you. Although it, it really does look as if uh, uh, the storm has uh, diminished in power and that it may very well stay offshore. Nevertheless, it's a disruption to all of your lives, and we're thinking about you down there. Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the paper, and, of course, he oversees Political Insider Block. How are you, Jim? I'm doing great. I had a wonderful weekend. Oh, good for you. Uh, thank you for uh, being on a Tuesday. Uh, it's really nice of you to come in. You could have taken one day, of, you know, a week off from oh, this show. No, no, I wouldn't dare. Okay. I wouldn't dare. <laughs> <laughs> Ed Lindsay is sitting across the table for you. If you're watching us on Facebook Live, uh, you'll see him there. Hi, Ed. Welcome to the show. Always enjoy being here. Yeah, we like having you. Ed, of course, former state rep, Republican state representative from Atlanta, and uh, now oversees the Georgia government relations practice for Denton's the world's largest law firm. Uh, Jeremiah Olney is in the studio as well. He is a principal at the Paramount Consulting Group. That's the firm that Theron Johnson founded. Uh, and you, Jeremiah, have been on board ever since Theron started the group. That's right. Yeah, I'm happy to be there, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much for being with us. Um, also, Martha Zoller is back with us. Martha has a long history. She was a media person. She did a radio show at WDUN out of Gainesville, went off and worked with David Perdue. She worked in his Georgia operation uh, overseeing, I think, Martha, constituent services. Is that a, a, a fair description, or is it broader than that? Issues? Team, the field team and policy okay. on the state level. Okay, and now you are back doing your morning radio show at WDUN, but we're really thrilled that you could be part of this show. Thank you. It's great to be here, and I had a great weekend, too. It was, it was, it's weird. It's Tuesday. That feels like a Monday. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it does. All right, let's go. Jim Galloway, um, so over the weekend, this storm, which appeared to be heading toward us, toward the Georgia coast as a Category 4 or 5, uh, Governor Kemp and his folks were watching this very, very carefully. Over the weekend, the governor declared a, a mandatory evacuation in six counties along the coast, which I, you know, started unfolding, I think, on Sunday morning, to the best of my knowledge. Right, right. And he pulled the the trigger pretty darn quickly on this one that's it's it's this has become a this has become a, a trend i think not just not just with kemp but i think with governors in general you don't hesitate yeah um he this is i think it's fair to say the first major uh weather uh, uh disaster well it's not a disaster yet weather event that he has had to manage he did during the, in January, when the Super Bowl was coming into town and it looked like we could get some pretty bad weather, he had to stay on top of that, too, because, and he ended up sending state workers home right. just in case. But this is much bigger. Right, yeah? right. So, um, so we watch Martha very carefully to see how people in that, po- in that position, a governor, handles this kind of, of emergency. And um, we watch first because we want to see how they're dealing with the safety of the people of the state. And then it's inescapable that we also look to see the politics of all this. So how do you grade the way that Governor Kemp has handled this from the safety point of view, Martha? Well, I think from an optics standpoint, I think, from the safety point, I think he did a great job. As Jim pointed out, he he he, he didn't make people wait to find out what was going to happen. And that way they could plan more, you know, about how they're going to leave and then come back. It's better to leave and come back, and maybe you didn't have to leave, and people will be mad about that. 
but it's a lot worse if you tell them not to leave, and then it's a lot worse than you think it is. Yeah. And, and it's just one of those things. But on the optics side, I, and, and Jim can correct me if I'm wrong on this, generally what you see is these kind of press conferences in that ceremonial office of the governor's office or maybe in the GEMA location that's uh, also in the metro Atlanta area. He did a couple of these press conferences from down in the area. And I think that that, from, a, from an optics standpoint... Uh, was very smart. And it also, it's from an educational, from, from a public educational point of view. It's if the governor is coming into your county and telling you to leave, then maybe you ought to listen to him. Well, th- I right. mean, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a scary storm. I mean, uh, certainly a, a lot of the emergency relief folks had to be concerned given what the, what Bermuda, uh, not Bermuda, uh, um, the Abacos, Bahamas. The Bahamas, yeah, the Bahamas are, are facing uh, with the Category 5 and the storm just hanging over it and the destruction that's being seen there. Um, you know, it, but so, so he's basically told folks, if you're east of I-95, get out. And yeah. as a result of that, I've got a daughter-in-law and a grand dog at my house. Right <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, Jeremiah, uh, this, I don't mean to make this, to trivialize this, but there is this comparison that, that I think we can make. It's like the superintendent of a school system, when snow is in the forecast, <laughs> who has to make the call, we're going to cancel classes tomorrow before the storm has come in. And it's one of those situations where often you cannot win for losing. <laughs> right. I think the only difference there is at least if someone tells you school's canceled, you're not going. If someone tells you to, no matter what happens, if someone tells you to evacuate your homes and then nothing happens, I think there's a danger of overcorrecting after the response in 2014 and the failures of the deal administration to handle that disaster well. If people keep getting these sort of alerts that they need to leave and then nothing bad happens, they might be inclined to stay when something bad does happen. I think that's what we saw in New Orleans with Katrina back in 2005, was that they've had all of these alerts, they've had all these threats, but nothing, they had no idea how bad it could be. I think sort of institutional memory can be kind of short, so I don't want them to overcorrect well, either. Well, and in Katrina, it was such a weird thing because, you know, we, I remember broadcasting the day after the storm hit, which it really came on ground in Mississippi. And kind of people breathing a sigh of relief because it didn't hit New Orleans and they didn't think it was going to be bad. And then, of course, you had the levees compromised. And then that's what led to the big issue that we had in New Orleans. And I don't know. It was a weird thing because you get up that morning and you think, oh, good, it didn't hit New Orleans. But there was more to it than that. Jim, uh, as we put this into some context and Jeremiah's already referred to it, it took Nathan, Nathan Deal and his administration a long time to recover from the so-called snowpocalypse, which paralyzed, paralyzed uh, Atlanta and became front page news across the country because they just, they and the mayor at the time, Kasim Reed, just didn't prepare for what they were going to have to deal with. And, and ever since then, uh, when, you, when we have a threat, you see those trucks out on the streets early. Uh, putting down the antifreeze, putting down the salt. Uh, they, it, it wasn't just a matter of, uh, of of whether to announce an emergency or not. It's what you do in the in the uh, in the uh, the, the hours yeah. leading up to it. Well, the snow apocalypse. Part of the problem was that it hit it hit at noon, uh, which is you know obviously the worst time of day you could have a, a snowstorm hit downtown Atlanta, and then suddenly everybody tried to get out at the same time and I was one of those people who was trying to get from the capital to my house in about 11 miles and it took me about eight hours. Mm-hmm. Yes but the point is Jeremiah that um, whether it hit at noon or whether it hit at five in the afternoon the point is that people held it against the governor yeah. uh, and the mayor mm-hmm. of Atlanta for a long time afterward, and they had to figure out how to respond better the next time they faced a crisis. Yeah, and, and look, at, I mean, uh, uh, 2005, George W. got hammered uh, because, of, because of what people saw as a, as a lackadaisical approach to it. With Katrina. Yeah. With Katrina, yeah. And people very rarely get hammered for over-preparing, and nobody ever wants to be put in that position again, or Bush yeah. and Deal and anyone else who's had to deal with something like this. To Deal's credit, it was something, how could we have possibly expected something like that? These massive catastrophic natural weather disasters i mean it's getting worse and i think we do have to be much more ready for it we need to prepare in advance and what's the old saying if you're explaining you're losing right Mm -hmm. in the the case of mayor reed i think he clearly did not respond and didn't get people out of atlanta quick enough the governor 
did put resources in the Macon area because they thought that's where the bad hit was going to happen. And what happened was it came about 90 miles north and then came through. And so they couldn't get, they had resources, the depart, the the uh, transportation department, that they were stuck in the same traffic we were all stuck in <laughs> because they couldn't get north. So I'm not, well, I'm not saying that, that, that frees one and, and condemns the other because if you're explaining, you're losing, right? Well, so the, it's that's what happened. The, the, the bottom line is that uh, the snowstorm in 2014 annoyed you. Yes. <laughs> this uh, Hurricane Dorian can kill you. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, given the intensity of it, and certainly we all want folks to heed the governor's warning and get out. All right. Yes. So, so we all feel that the that the Kemp administration has handled this about as well as you can in a situation like this, right? I mean, that's a fair way to think. Say it. Right, right right now. And, and yeah. so, yeah. And so far, it's all been it, it's all been prep. I yeah. Mean, yeah. As oh. a Democratic strategist, I hate to say it, but I do agree. <laughs> 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 all right. So we said that, but but now let's go back a little bit, Jim. You already mentioned Katrina and President Bush's reaction to that. So let's go to that first. There are political consequences that come out of events uh, like hurricanes. Um, George W. Bush will tell you today that the worst episode in his presidency was the way in which he and his administration responded to Katrina. And if there is a moment uh, that personifies just how poorly they handled it, it was when President Bush finally made his way down to New Orleans. Remember, he made a pass. He was in the South, and he made a pass in Air Force One over New Orleans after the uh, the city had been submerged in water. And there was a photograph of him looking out the window of the airplane as he flew past the disaster. And meanwhile, the Astrodome, I mean, the uh, 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 Superdome, Superdome. Superdome was a a play, a, just a nightmare where people had been evacuated to. There was fighting going on in there. There was no food. There was no water. And if there was a moment that personified how bad it was, it was when Bush finally did come to New Orleans and stood with his leadership team, including his FEMA director, and said this. But right now, the immediate concern is to save lives and get food and medicine to people so we can stabilize the situation. Uh, again, I, I want to thank you all for, and Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The FEMA director's working 24 hours. They're working 24 hours a day. Again, my attitude is if it's not going exactly right, we're going to make it go exactly right. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a yeah, job. Yeah, that was uh, Michael Brown, was it? Yeah, Michael yeah. Brown. Yeah. He was, yeah. How many Michael, months later Michael, was it before he was, was out? Uh, he, was, he was gone pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. and, he, and, 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 and I think, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, he didn't really have a, a background in emergency no. management. That's correct. No. That's correct. But you know, keep in mind one thing, and, and we're seeing this on the Georgia level now. We're seeing what's happening in Florida. For the most part, disaster relief, it, it's sort of a, it's a federalized system. You, you start at the local, then you go to the state, and then you have the, the federal uh, folks come in. And, you know, a lot of the problems that they saw in Louisiana were a result of problems at the local and the state. Now, that's not to take away the, re- the role of the federal folks. Uh, they were slow to react when, when the local and the state couldn't handle it and were overwhelmed. They were slow to, to come in and take control. But, but a lot of what we're seeing now sort of should remind you that a, a lot of our disaster relief programs depend on a functioning local and state government. Uh, to be the at the first line of defense. Well, and when you when we made the comment about you know damned if you do and damned if you don't, um, that we have discussions even today in tragedies um, and weather events whether the president should go in or not go in, whoever the president is, because you know in a way him going in too soon, him or her going in too soon, the resources it takes to secure a president to bring him in and out gets in the way. So there was a discussion just a couple of weeks ago, and granted it was related to a shooting, about whether President Trump should go or not go. If he didn't go, he's a heartless you-know-what. If he does go, he's creating havoc on the ground. It was, you know, when's the right time to go? One of the greatest moments of President Bush's presidency was when he stood on that pile of rubble at the World Trade Towers and talked to the first responders. So 
these timing things are not as cut and dry as you would hope they would be. I think that's a great point, Jeremiah, and it does say a lot about how you calculate the right approach to these things. Sure. I think suggesting that President Trump is calculating any approach is a little ridiculous to me. But I honestly, for him, I don't see him going or not going as indicative of how much he cares about this. I understand that that's how it's portrayed by a lot of people. But I think more indicative is him taking hundreds of millions of dollars from FEMA funding to fund his wall. I think that shows his priorities much better than him doing a photo op in a you know ruined infrastructure. Well, we have to point out that so far the storm track appears to be taking Dorian offshore, going up well into North Carolina, and we don't really know what's going to happen at that point. It's a little premature to even be thinking about, about the calculation for what Trump will do. Sure. But I want to go back to another hurricane. You know, Jim, just in case people say, well, it's awfully cynical of you to frame how a president, how a governor responds to a disaster in uh, political terms. In September of 1965, Hurricane Betsy came ashore in New Orleans, and it flooded the city much the way Katrina did. Seventy-five people were killed. And the day after the storm hit, Senator Russell Long, son of Huey Long, made a what's become a very famous phone call in terms of dealing with emergency response uh, to the president. I'd love to be able to play you the tape, but it's just not clear enough. You can look, <laughs> go to the University of, Georgia, of uh, Virginia Miller Library. You can see it there. But here's just a little of what Russell Long, Russell Long said to the president. He said, Mr. President, aside from the Great Lakes, the biggest lake in America is Lake Pontchartrain. It is now drained dry. That Hurricane Betsy picked up the lake and put it inside New Orleans and Jefferson Parish. My people, oh, they're in tough shape. And he tried to get the president. He said, you've got to come down here now. And, And Johnson, if you listen to the tape, says, I don't know. I've got a very busy schedule the next two days. And then is the point that I wanted to talk about. Russell Long says, Mr. President, if you want to go to Louisiana right now, you lost that state last year. You could save yourself a campaign speech. Just go there right now and say, my God, this is horrible. These federally constructed levees that Hale Boggs and Russell Long built is the only thing that saved 5,000 lives. <laughs> Russell, Russell Long was, was making the point that's been made for thousands of years that, that, that Lyndon Johnson was about to lose the mandate of heaven. <laughs> uh, you had you have you you for 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 centuries you had Chinese emperors rule through that through the mandate of heaven and they, it was always won or lost through natural disasters. Yeah, well, guess what? Uh, Russell Long prevailed upon the president to show up in New Orleans, and so he went down there very very quickly. He too flew over New Orleans in Air Force One and looked down. But then he actually landed. And, and it, was, it was probably in a prop plane that didn't fly at 30,000 Probably feet. correct. Yeah. And, well, here's, and, and after that hurricane, um, the plan that was put in place to prevent that from happening again was never put in place. The federal funding never happened to put that in place to save Lake Pontchartrain from that in the future. Good. And here's what uh, just a little of what Lyndon Johnson said. The president uh, said, what, by the way, if you were to look at the video of this, Hail Boggs. Uh, is standing right over his uh, right shoulder. And, of course, Hale Boggs, one of the most uh, prestigious, one of the most important members of Congress uh, from Louisiana uh, uh, that the state has ever known. Let's listen to just a little. I put aside all the problems on my desk to come to Louisiana as soon as I could. I have observed from flying over your city how great the catastrophe is that you have experienced. Human suffering and physical damage are measureless. I'm here this evening to pledge to you the full resources of the federal government to Louisiana to help repair as best we can the injury that has been done by nature. So, Ed, that couldn't ask for a better way to respond. Um, Except for actually repairing the levees. Well, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as Martha pointed out, unfortunately, while he, he had a good photo op, uh, he and subsequent administrations, both Republican and Democratic, 
uh, failed to uh, to reinforce the levies that they should have I, and led to the disaster in 2005. Well, that's right. And I'm talking strictly about the optics. Oh, I know. I know. That's, uh, I'm, and, I'm just and, sort of moving And you're, you're right. And, and uh, Tom Faust says when Martha said they never did act federally, I say good. I didn't mean good. They didn't <laughs> act. Um, but... Johnson, uh, Jeremiah, this was apparently a very emotional day. It ended up being for the president. While he was there, a woman came up to him crying, said that she had both her sons had drowned as Betsy roared in and the floodwaters rose. And the reporting out of there is that it was a very moving day for the president. How could it not be? I mean, when you see that kind of destruction, that kind of loss of life, the things that are destroyed, it's not just homes, it's treasured possessions, it's things yeah. you've had for generations in your family, things you can't always pick up and take with you. There are a lot of people who don't have the means to pick up and leave, and they're the ones who suffer most. So I have a family like that who loses their children, who was stuck there, who, for whatever reason, I think that is sort of the basic responsibility of the president is to reassure the American people that they are there, they're listening, and they're going to do whatever they can to alleviate human suffering. Yeah, you know, Jim, clearly there were presidents before LBJ who responded in humane ways to disasters, but they that visit to, to, the, the, to Betsy, to the aftermath of Betsy, is often thought of as kind of the benchmark for looking at how presidents respond to disaster. Oh yeah, it was it was a consoler very, in uh, chief. It was it was it was. Uh, I mean, I, I would draw a straight line from from that visit to Bill Clinton saying, "I feel your pain." Uh, that was a that was a, a it was a that was that's kind of the height of empathy. Yeah, and I, and I think that's where that's where you know I mean I mean Trump does poorly when 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 you compare him to uh, to 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 events like that. Yeah, I mean the image that emerges from President Trump's visit to Puerto Rico. Forget about even what happened subsequently when he kind of waged war against Puerto Rico and the relief money that um, that Congress had appropriated for him. Martha is unfortunate for him. It's the tossing of rolls of paper towel out uh, to uh, survivors of, of that storm. And it, again, this is only optics, but the optics matter, don't they? Martha? Are you there? Do we lose Martha? Here. Oh, there you Can are. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. In in 1936, we had a tornado that basically flattened downtown Gainesville. Yeah. FDR came twice. He came right after the 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 tornado, and then he came two years later after everything had been rebuilt. Really. And there is a spe- came by train, of course. There is a special podium that was built for him with rails on it, so he could stand up and hold on. And to this day, that that podium is brought out for special events that is used. There's a Roosevelt Square, you know, in the heart of, of Gainesville. Uh, so you're right. These things have impact. Now, granted, you didn't have the power of television that LBJ was probably the no, first televised. No, but you had, ra- you had radio. But yeah, you had radio. radio. And it was it was an event you heard about, um, you know, your whole life. And I'm wondering I'm wondering if, if he did that on the way to or from Gain- yeah. from Warm Springs. Right. Yeah. right. Maybe. 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 Clearly, I train. Yeah. And clearly, of course, Georgia was close to his heart, Jim, for the very reason you're talking yep. about. This, yep. The Little White House was, was his uh, favorite sanctuary. Uh, Martha, as you told that story, which I think was int- – I'm not sure any of us in the studio were aware of it. I saw a column forming in Jim Galloway's eyes, or at least a part of it. <laughs> hey, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way and come back with uh, more news on Political Rewind. As Hurricane Dorian gets closer, GPB has you covered with the latest information from the Georgia Emergency Management Agency. Listen at four minutes past each hour and we'll give you updates on evacuations, shelters, and other state announcements. You can also go to our website, gpbnews.org, for the latest news on the hurricane, plus listen live. You can also follow us on our GPB apps or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. An NPR investigation finds low-income neighborhoods in dozens of major cities nationwide are hotter than their wealthier counterparts, and that can take a serious toll on health. It is the most significant public health problem that we have. It's going to be here for a long time, and it's getting worse. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB, online at gpbnews.org or listen on the GPB apps. 
We have some breaking news that Jim Galloway and Tom Faust both pointed out to me uh, while the show, when the show started, and uh, it relates to a topic that we're going to uh, spend a little time on today. Tomorrow we're going to get into an, uh, more uh, depth on it. Walmart announced on Tuesday it would formally end handgun sales, discontinue sales on certain types of ammunition, and ban customers from openly carrying firearms after last month's mass shooting at an El Paso, Texas store. Uh, But of course, it's more than just last month in El Paso, Jim. It's this most recent uh, series of of, of shootings that killed seven people in West Texas just this past weekend. And you have more information on what Walmart is banning, I think, right? Uh, right, right. Yeah, they're, they're, uh, it's, it's, it's the um, uh, .223 caliber and 5.56 caliber uh, uh, shells that, that, that are used in some hunting rifles, but they're also used in large capacity clips. Okay, so it's handgun sales and, and some certain, certain types of, of ammunition of, of for ammunition. long long guns uh, well for, no they, these no? Are, these can be used uh, well in short short uh, short barrel short barrel military weapons gotcha okay M- military style uh, Jeremiah this of course comes uh, on the same in the same time frame yesterday or the day before rather September 1st a new Texas law kicked in a law which broadens uh, to virtually anywhere that people can carry weapons, it uh, allows weapon. It allows you to carry a weapon without a license if you're fleeing from an emergency situation mm-hmm. of some kind or another. The irony of these shootings, these drive-by shootings, and this law were not lost in terms of the way the story was reported. Sure. I think now more than ever, it's clear that there are two schools of thinking in terms of how to stop gun violence. Either you have fewer guns or you have guns everywhere. And given that we already have something like 330 million guns in the country, more guns than people, I don't know how many more guns you could possibly need to stop gun violence if that is apparently the solution. And I think it's kind of absurd that a private company like Walmart, admittedly one of the largest employers in the country, largest private employer in the country, some of the most stores, highest revenue, that they are the ones who are being forced to take leadership on this issue after a lot of public pressure, and that it was not Republican politicians who we expect should be leaders because they are the people making the laws, and it comes down to Walmart having to restrict access to these weapons. And, and uh, Ed, they're also saying uh, they that... Um, are, are they saying they don't want weapons in the stores, period? They're, they're going to encourage their customers not to open carry yeah. in, in the stores. Yeah, That's private property right. Uh, you know, we've had this discussion in Georgia uh, from time to time uh, when when I was in the General Assembly when there was a fight going, you know, well, we ought to, you know, require, rather allow folks to carry guns into certain places that are actually owned by private uh, entities, whether it be businesses or churches or, or something else. And for many of us, it boiled down to an issue of private property rights. You all have a right to decide what uh, what you have, what folks bring into your uh, establishment. Uh, you know, wait, wait. this is a hard debate. Uh, you know, and the question is, what will really work? What will really make a difference? And, and you know, and 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 look, I'm, I know I'm speaking off the top of my head here. I I need to read more on on what Walmart is and why it's doing it. But you know, we're we, obviously we don't have Congress acting on this, and and uh, I'm I'm sensing that insurance companies are where the action is on, yeah. when it comes to guns. Well, and the other part of it is not only are insurance companies where the action is, but there are movements out there on social media, and you can say whether they represent real people or not, uh, but are saying, don't go to Walmart. You know, I mean, I think this is a not only a private property decision, but it's a capitalistic decision that yeah. they want to be on the cutting edge here, and they want to make sure their business going into Christmas is good. Yeah, you know what, Jeremiah? Uh, Dick Sporting Goods just plain said we'll get out of the business of selling right. uh, weapons. Walmart is uh, it, Walmart will continue to sell hunting rifles. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, they, it's a lucrative business for them, so they're taking a measure that's probably. I suppose if you're if you want some restrictions on weapons, you're happy about, um, but they're hedging their bets. A little bit, sure. But it's still more than Republicans in Congress have done. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so, Congress, let's go ahead and talk about this as long as we're there. Uh, Ed, Congress has still got a few more days of their recess, and then they're heading back to yeah. Washington, I think, next week. And we seem to now, the signals out of the White House no longer seem to favor the president. In fact, 
taking strong action and asking Congress to take strong action on um, universal background checks. Where, where do you think this is headed at this point? Well, the crystal ball is as clear as fog right now in terms of what direction the, the president is going to go. Uh, we are being told that his administration is putting together a proposed bill uh, to deal with it. We don't really know what's in it. Uh, we do know that uh, in the country as a whole, the, uh, what is it, 80, I've heard the numbers anywhere between 85 to 90 or 95 percent of folks uh, believe in background checks. Uh, and at least expanding those background checks to include uh, any kind of uh, commercial sale, for instance, at, uh, at some gun shows where there's some loopholes. And, but, you know, it gets back to my question earlier, and, and, and I actually favor those kind of expanded uh, background checks. But, I, but at the same token, I do so with the clear understanding that in most of these mass shootings, it would not have made a difference. Uh, most of these mass shootings, uh, the guns were either uh, purchased uh, uh, at a commercial store uh, where a background check was uh, performed, uh, or uh, the the gun was stolen. Uh, so while I do think that it just makes some common sense in terms of gun safety uh, to expand background checks, I want to make sure folks understand that with, with a lot of these horrendous uh, situations that we're seeing, it probably is not going to make a direct end. No, no. I mean, one of the one of the things you've heard in the last forty eight hours is some Republican proposals to to uh, to uh, provide something like an instant death penalty on 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 acts, mass killings like these. But but then you have to you have to look at what what the events actually are, which are these are very ritualized uh, suicide by cops. Yeah. Yeah, and once again, you you hear a lot of these proposed solutions. I I think anyone who who basically goes out and and murders uh, twenty people, uh, I think the death penalty is warranted. But you're absolutely right in terms of deterrence. Most of these folks are engaged in a suicide mission. I also believe in background checks. Although I'll have to admit that in the the mass shootings that we've talked about, I'm not sure what a direct impact it's going to have. Uh, we've got a, a culture out there that we're going to have to be dealing with in which we are more and more becoming alienated from each other. And that when you become alienated from each other, it's easier to stop seeing the humanity in your fellow man and engage in this kind of horrendous act. Martha, and then you, Jeremiah, if President Trump continues to send mixed signals about universal background checks, which is what he had come down to after El Paso and Dayton, uh, uh, can can Congress do it? Uh, can they take the leadership? Uh, Martha, can Mitch McConnell take the leadership and tell the president we're doing this because we need, if for no other reason, 2020 is in our sights at this point and we've got to do something? Or without the president's complete cooperation, is the Senate going to do nothing too? Well, and there was supposed to be a hearing this week in, on Capitol Hill related to this issue. Um, and I don't know if it's the Democrats or the not enough Republicans going to turn up, but they decided not to do it and to come back when they were going to come back next week. So I do. Do I think that they ought that they're going to come up with something? Yes, I do think that the Senate and the House is going to come up with something that they are going to pass and will go to the president's desk. I think if that happens, the president will sign it, because what we have seen is, is that if the president, if a bill gets through the whole process, he tends to sign it. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't tend to veto. So I, I think he will continue to say the last thing that he's heard on this issue. But at the same time, I think that, you know, I think McConnell is very aware of, um, you know, what's going to happen in just a few months. I don't agree with that. I personally don't believe that anything is going to end up on the president's desk. Somewhat to Ed's point, I mean, these are the smallest incremental steps of, you know, gun reform that may not even make a difference, but they would also not infringe on Second Amendment rights whatsoever. And even then, the narrative that's placed around these things by a lot of conservatives who are, make up the primary voting base is that but, this is gun control. This is stripping away Second Amendment what rights. Is the point, what is the point of doing it if it's not going to change anything? It, just to make us feel better? Because if it stops even one, that's enough. I was waiting to hear if Martha had a response to that. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't know how you measure that. It's kind of like the anti-vaxxers that don't vax their kids. How do you measure that those who of us who do vaccinate our kids are doing the right thing versus the ones that are doing the wrong thing? Yes, you have more disease, but if you if you can't measure how it's going to happen, 
you know, I don't know how you do it. And look, I'm a Second Amendment. I, I think that what Walmart did is great because they did it of their own volition. Yes, with pressure, as Jeremiah pointed out, but they made a business decision, right? I like that. Yeah. Um, I do think that, you know, when you when you look at making changes that are going to affect the Second Amendment, then you have to be very careful, very careful of how far you go. All right. Well, it's going to be interesting. I mean, we, we've got still, as I said, a few more days. Congress isn't back, Jim, until the beginning of next week. And it'll be interesting if this is on the agenda in the Senate. The House has already passed uh, a measure that the Senate could take up. But they're not going to, and the question is, will McConnell move something forward? Yeah, right. yeah. I want to see. I, I want to watch Marco Rubio and red yeah. flag legislation. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll watch how that develops in the week ahead. Let's do something else before we take a break. Jim Galloway, why is this special election taking place right now today in House District seventy one to replace a state rep? Why are we talking about it on Political Rewind? A race, by the way, which, as you've pointed out in The Insider, got completely overshadowed by multiple national news stories as well as state stories. Why? why? Because they're, this is the, the uh, Coweta County, uh, Fayette County seat held by David Stover. Mm-hmm. He vacated it this summer. Uh, we're talking about it because there are, there, there are two likely outcomes. We'll have two Republicans in an October 1st runoff, in which case that race could become a, a real a, a real test of support for uh, for House Speaker David Ralston on the Republican side, or you could have one Democrat and one Republican, in which case you're going to have a state Democratic Party pointing to this as a bellwether for 2020. Um, Stover was one of the 10, <clears throat> ten Republicans yes. who were working to oust Ralston as Speaker in the aftermath of the controversy that... Uh, was reported that the AJC broke exclusively, which had to do, of course, with the with accusations that the speaker was taking advantage of his position in the legislature to delay court cases by uh, to uh, favor clients. But so you've got one candidate in this race, right? Um, Philip Singleton. Uh, yes, Singleton. Yeah. Who hasn't said specifically he would vote against Ralston. But he's being a little coy about it, and he's got the backing of Eric Erickson, the WSB radio uh, personality, uh, who specifically wants Ralston <laughs> out, yeah, and he, who has pretty much said, that's why we need Singleton in there. Go ahead, Ed. Eric has made it very clear that uh, what, what what he hopes to see happen in the next session. Uh, and, and what folks need to understand, particularly those of us who live inside the perimeter, uh, the power that Eric Erickson has for commuters who have to go outside the perimeter to come home or go to work, in which he is uh, on the air for, for uh, five to seven every night, and he has a very high uh, radio listen- listenership uh, made up of those folks. So he, he has a big impact, and we've seen it in other races as well, and, and no one should understate it. What I'm going to a little bit broader than that. I'm going to wait to see whether or not the folks down there will elect someone who could be effective for them. And the fact of the matter is David Stover wasn't. Uh, he was an outlier. Uh, he was a lone wolf. And the, and, and the bottom line is, if you want to serve in the General Assembly, it's a team sport. Yeah. And and you've got to learn how to work well yeah. with others. You, David you, had a lot of good attributes to him, but being a team player was not one of them. And as a result, that community has, by and large, um, not had effective uh, uh, leg- um, leadership down at the House. One interesting aspect about this race I found fascinating, and Jim raised it in one of his articles, was uh, uh, the Singleton guy you know, claiming that uh, – that the speaker is trying to sneak Marta into their community. <laughs> now, well, there are a few basic problems with that. Number one is that Fayette County is not in the footprint of Marta <laughs> under its present charter. That's number one. Number two, uh, Marta only goes into those counties uh, after a referendum takes place and the people want it. Um, so, you know, th- that kind of silliness that you often yeah. see in politics and it, it, yeah. it can drive some people to distraction. Yeah, I, I want to give a shout out to the uh, the other other people in this yeah, race. Mar- Marcy Westmoreland Sackerson, who is the she Lynn is Lynn Westmoreland's the, daughter, the, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Who is yeah. the leading in the polls? And uh, uh, and then Jill uh, Prouty, the Democrat. Jill Prouty, she is a Peachtree City librarian. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I'm trying to call up my screen, and I can't get Nina uh, Blackwelder. I think. Yes, that's yeah. exactly right. Uh, she is. She is a Republican, kind of a with a with a libertarian bent. So you know what, Jeremiah? Well, go ahead. You were going to comment on this. Uh, uh, no, yeah. The without whole, my asking a question. I, yeah, uh, I have a lot of strong feelings about Marta as someone who doesn't drive and commutes everywhere on the train <laughs> and the buses. I want to kind of touch on the silliness remark. I think describing it as silliness kind of trivializes what this language does. If you look at what Singleton said, he said he wants to preserve the culture of the community yeah. is why he's opposed to MARTA. You look at the counties where MARTA is most prevalent, Fulton and Cab, they are um, 45% and 35% black, roughly. And then you look at these counties, Fayette and Coweta, they are 70% plus white. Preserving the culture of the community is a flat-out dog whistle for preserving the whiteness of the community. And the fact that it's something that they... I think this is going to make a bigger difference than it being a referendum on Ralston. Yeah, this is... Uh, and, and, and to Jeremiah's point, I, I mean, I, I grew up on the south side. This is... Uh, uh, Coweta and Fayette are where a lot of the, the, the white neighborhoods shifted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in in the in the seventies and eighties, so that's it's kind of that that generation there. Well, I don't disagree with Jeremiah in terms of of, of the nature uh, of perhaps the underlying uh, bent of dog whistle, as you call it. I'll talk about it in terms of this is really something that's simply not going to happen. Mm. Here's the well, great irony: is that in those two counties, uh, and you know, I was on I've been on a couple of the transportation uh, committees over the years, in those two counties. Most of the people who who are employed, who live in those counties, or not most, half, leave the counties to go work <laughs> elsewhere. But here was the other part. Of the jobs that are in those counties, half the folks who work in those counties come from other counties. So transportation is an enormous yeah, and, and the other, other thing here is is that every one of the candidates, including the Democrat, kind of echoed uh, Phil Singleton's sentiments Look, and, on and this. Martha, jump a, in. Yeah. Well, and this is a special election where they are trying any way they can to get attention to this so they can get, I mean, I don't know how many people will turn out today, maybe a thousand, maybe two thousand, I don't know. Um, but I think that they're trying to get attention any way they can at the last minute here, and they're not going to get any attention. This is going to largely be something that people haven't paid attention to, and whether it has an effect on the speaker or not, I don't think it will. I haven't looked at the demographics of that of that er- that district, uh, mm-hmm. Jeremiah, but I'm assuming that under normal circumstances, it's a Republican district. I believe so. Yes. And but. But as Martha just pointed out, here we are in election the day after Labor Day. It hasn't gotten any attention, really. Um, it, and you've got uh, you've got the potential for a Jill Prouty, a Democrat, to find herself in a runoff, given that she's facing yeah. three Republicans. So this may be the best opportunity that a Democrat has to even come close <laughs> to being elected in that district. And I think this is a very viable pickup as well. She's a good candidate. She's saying all the right things. She's in the right area where she can say, you know, I oppose the forced birth bill that passed this year. But also, she can also wait, 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 wait. What did you call it? The forced birth bill. Okay. <laughs> so where did that language come from? Because I, this is, like, okay, you're, you're, in, you're, in, you're injecting a term. Because heartbeat is too positive. <laughs> okay, go ahead. That's actually exactly right. Heartbeat describes as something No, it just different. sounds like the kind of talking point Democrats are going to use. It's a new term. The fact that they're not using that already is kind of shocking to me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I'll okay. tell you one. Wait, wait, wait. I, I interrupted <laughs> Jeremiah, who was going to make a point about Prouty, I think. No, it's fine. Yes, the point is that she know, she's saying all the right things. She's not running as, you know, sort of a center of Atlanta Democrat. She's running as a south of the perimeter Democrat, and I think she's doing a very good job of it. All right, quick last comment from you, Ed, and then we got to get our final break To in. your point, uh, I'll take the under on the over under 10%. Okay, I never understood that. I'm not a gambler, so I'm not Less quite sure. Less than 10%. Let's get a break in, and when we come back, a big endorsement, a big name endorsement for one of the candidates for uh, the Democratic nomination for U.S. Senate. But will it matter? We'll talk about that with the panel after this. Downton Abbey is coming to the big screen. Right now, GPB invites you to be among the first to see this new feature film. Join us on Sunday, September 15th in Atlanta for an advanced screening and VIP reception. Tickets are limited, so make sure we hear from you now. Go to gpb.org slash Downton tickets to find out more and reserve your seat. That's gpb.org slash Downton tickets. On the next Fresh Air. We're caught in a trap. A 50th anniversary box set of Elvis Presley's 1969 comeback in Vegas has just been released. 
We'll talk with James Burton, the guitarist who played with Elvis on those concerts and until Elvis's death. Burton played with many iconic performers, including Sinatra. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB, gpbnews.org, and on the GPB apps. Jim Galloway, last week, the Democratic race for David Perdue's U.S. Senate seat got a new formal uh, contender. Sarah Amico uh, joined the race. She'd had an exploratory committee and then jumped in with both feet. She was on the show the other day, and um, uh, it was interesting to hear her uh, uh, points of view on any number of subjects, but she's now fully engaged in this race. Uh, Today... Uh, maybe not by coincidence, another candidate in the race got a big endorsement. Tell us about right, it. Right, you're right. That was uh, Teresa Tomlinson, uh, was endorsed by Andrew Young, uh, who is of our generation, Bill. Yeah. And so, so you know, it's it's not something aimed at it's a, something aimed at older voters, uh, and it hinted, hinted of of more endorsements to come. By the way, I'm trying to sell something here. I'm trying to sell. <laughs> Uh, we have Senate race number one, yeah. and we have Senate race number two. Right. Number oh, one good. is the Purdue. Yeah. Number number two is the Isaacson seat. It's I, just a quick shorthand. I can get on board with that. We will, Tom Faust. I think we should start talking about it that way. Senate race number one, David Purdue. Number two, the open, the Johnny Isaacson seat. Um, it's interesting, Jeremiah, that uh, uh, that Galloway immediately went to oh. He's appealing to old old people. <laughs> he also does happen to be an African-American civil rights leader, which may have some value. In this, in this, in this, in this building. In this building. Oh, okay. Who, yes, has his offices in our building. Right. I mean, yeah, there, we will need... Whoever's going to end up getting the Senate nomination does need to appeal to a wide swath of voters. And as much as Democrats, Democratic strategists, and everyone else talk about millennial voters and that being this huge rising base of support, the fact of the matter is there are still plenty of older Democrats, and they also vote much more reliably. You can't rely on my generation to turn out and elect the next senator. Wait, Martha, I'm still kind of struck by the way that both Jeremiah and Jim are now talking about it. One of the keys to winning the Democratic nomination, I think it's fair to say, is attracting African-American voters. No, no no doubt about it. So so Andy Young is a black leader. (laughs) It's not just that he appeals to older voters, is it, uh, Martha? And you know what I love the most about Andy Young is he's a capitalist. Okay, he is a Democrat. He is a Democrat in the old style of the Democratic Party. Where they were socially, you know, socially aware, and obviously there's nobody more socially aware than than Andy Young. But he also believes in capitalism and entrepreneurship, and he is in the old mold of the Democratic Party. And you know, to old people, right? And old Jeremiah is exactly right that older people vote a lot more reliably yeah. in primaries okay. than younger all right. people do. Uh, you all convinced me. You all <laughs> yeah. convinced me. And Ed, I'm older, so yeah. Ed, do do endorsements matter the way they used to? No. But, I want the huge but in this situation, when you start seeing folks like Andrew Young and other establishment Republicans willing to come off the fence and start endorsing in a primary, it tells me that the field is closing. There we go. That, you know, we've always been talking, a lot of us around the table uh, have been sort of talking about who's going to be the next person to get into this race. I think when you start seeing someone uh, of the caliber of Mayor Young... uh, who's an establishment Republican for all the right reasons, you start saying, okay, the field is closing. Yeah, it's really establishment a Establishment Democrat. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, Jim. Yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah, Jim. yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing you have to remember is you have to go back to the 2017 mayoral race. And who's, who, who did Andy Young endorse in that race? Caesar Mitchell. No. He did endorse Caesar Mitchell, didn't he? No, he, 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 he was Keisha Lance Keisha. Bottoms. Mm. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a long conversation with him on Thanksgiving Day. Okay, in the runoff. All right, all right, yeah. all right. Yeah, he was he was uh, he was he he, he in the, okay the, in, in the, the runoff general. in the runoff in the general in the first round he may have in, in, endorsed okay. Caesar. Okay. okay, in the in the in the runoff against Mary Norwood, he he was he backed oh, Keisha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms. So the mayor of Atlanta owns uh, owes uh, uh, Andy Young something. So it wouldn't he's going to bring other people with him. This is this is what I'm trying to get at in a very yeah. awkward fashion. No, no, you're fine. I I just I think I was just uh, surprised uh, to, because I thought he did endorse um, 
uh, Caesar first time around, but I may be wrong. Okay, but more important, what Ed says is really true, isn't it, Jim? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, we he, all this talk about, oh, who else is going to jump into this race? Is John Ossoff going to get into this race? Is race number one. Is there an African-American candidate that's going to get into race number one? Uh, Andy Young starts to close the door on right, new right. entries. Yeah, yeah. It would, uh, it's most specifically, it closes the door. It means that there's probably not going to be an African-American candidate in race number one, uh, which means that it's going to be very important to have an African-American candidate for uh, uh, in race, race number, number two, two if you're yeah. the Democratic Party. Uh, let me just, uh, thanks to Robert Jimison, uh, Jim Galloway, I am pr- very pleased to say we're both right. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and, Andy, Andy did endorse Caesar Mitchell the first time around, and yes, in the runoff, Kind of not surprisingly, he endorsed uh, the Democrat, Keisha Bottoms, over the Republican, Mary Norderwood. Oh, no, no, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get in trouble with that one, Bill. Um, I, I've got to correct that for no other reason that she has my email. <laughs> so let me just say that she maintains... That she's an independent. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> fine. So, Martha, what do you think this... You know, I asked Ed the question, but I want to hear your uh, take on it with the couple of minutes that we have here. What about an endorsement these days? I mean, does it matter in the era of so- social media, uh, with all the other circumstances we deal with in a campaign today? Will Andy Young's endorsement, aside from maybe sealing off the race matter to Teresa Tomlinson going forward? It's a very big deal for her to get it, but how much impact is it likely to have? Well, you always want them rather than not having them, but but it just depends upon the race, okay? In my race, when I ran for Congress against Doug Collins, I had, you know, all the big-name third-party folks coming in and endorsing me. And, and at the end, in the runoff, he got Governor Deal to endorse him. So that one mattered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but some of the other ones did not. <laughs> Jer- Jeremiah, we're more than a year out from the general, mm-hmm. and we're still months and months away from the primary that will pick the Democratic nominee. So there's that to look at, too, that Andy Young jumped in at this stage of the race uh, really kind of confirms this notion of sealing off the race, doesn't yeah. it? Amen. And I was very surprised. I think he recognizes what some other people are increasingly recognizing. We're seeing a, an increasing um, frequency of endorsements now as we're getting closer and closer, even if it is still this far away. And I think in this case, it doesn't matter as much for sort of general election voters. I think it matters more immediately and it grants her candidacy even more legitimacy. It'll make it easier to fundraise because there are people who trust uh, Ambassador Young. And if they trust him, they'll trust his judgment and they'll be more inclined to get on board with her. And now is really the time that these candidates need to be bolstering their name recognition and their strength. And anything that puts her in the news is a good thing. Jeremiah Olney, you got the last word on today's show. Thank you for being here. Uh, Ed Lindsay, always fun to have you. And Martha Zoller, it's been great that we've been able to get you to come on the show more often. Keep doing that, please. Thank uh, you. Anytime. Jim Galloway, I'll see you again on Friday's show. I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, Buddy Darden, Eric Tannenblatt, are going to be here, so that should be fun. Quick note before uh, we leave today. Sunday, I celebrated a huge anniversary. I moved to Atlanta 36 years ago Sunday to go to work for WSB-TV. And what was fascinating to me about that is I left Chicago, my hometown, at age 36. That means that as of Sunday, I have lived in in Atlanta, Georgia, my adopted town, as long as I lived in Chicago. And I want to thank you all for having made this a wonderful place professionally And you're still not from here, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Martha Zeller gets the last word. Dang it. Political (laughs) Rewind. See you all tomorrow at 2.